My name is Joel, and it's my pleasure to read to you from John chapter 4, verse 19 to 26. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ, and when he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. You may be seated. Well, I want to start with a question. Well, maybe we won't start with a question. We'll start with a recap. We are, this is week two, would be week three, but hey, we had snow, snow day last Sunday. Um, week two of a series, a new series we're starting called The Praises of His People. We're trying to explore a practical theology of worship together because, because I, it's, it's my sense, and it's, maybe I'm just projecting my own stuff onto you guys, but uh, it's my sense that a lot of us, I'll just speak for myself, that I can operate much of my life, even as a pastor now, even as someone who's been to seminary, all this stuff, just with this vague sense of what worship is. I mean, I, I bounce back and forth between like, okay, I know worship is supposed to be like, I think it, anywhere you can worship in some sense, but there's also like this thing we do, we really prioritize in these gatherings every Sunday morning where we sing songs together. And so what is that? So if worship can be anything and anywhere, like why do we have to sing songs? What is all of this? And the goal is to try to untangle this so that both all of life can be understood uh, for, for the potential for worship that it is, but also that when we gather here together, uh, including, like, all of this is worship, all that we do here together is worship, but including the singing of songs, that we actually have, like, goals, and we actually have an understanding of what we're stepping into. My hunch is that if we can understand the whys and the whats and the hows, like, we can actually commune with God more deeply when we come together to do this, rather than just kind of ping-ponging around and figuring it out on the fly. So that's what we're up to. This is week two. Last week, we just started with actually a, a very substantial goal. I'm not sure how successful we were. We want to just start with the idea of what is it about God that makes him praiseworthy, worship worthy. We just wanted to start there. Who is this God that we are told to worship, that we're commanded to worship, that we, you know, probably in our better moments understand the worship of is ultimately for our good and our flourishing, is meant to produce joy? Who is he? And why and how is all that stuff true? And this week, we start getting into the what of worship itself. And, and today's question, today's text from the Gospel of John, chapter 4, centers on a question, which is this. Where do you worship? Where do you worship? And I, I know, for most of us in the room, we've got like these multiple categories firing. And uh, some of you go, well, it's here, right now, Cameron, what we're doing right now. This is like when I gather for worship with my Christian community. Uh, and then others of you are maybe the same, very same people. Like, okay, and I also know that there's this thing, this all of life worship thing. I'm supposed to be worshiping like somehow when I'm at work and somehow when I'm in my car and somehow when I'm trying to like 
not strangle my children and all of these things. Uh, so what is going on? Worship here, saying, saying you worship here is a good answer. Saying you worship in the car is a good answer. Saying you worship when you're with your children or with your friends or when you're eating food is a good answer. But why? Why? Well, that's what, the, that's what we're going to dive into today. I think John chapter 4, this discussion with Jesus and the woman at the well, is probably the most foundational, basic, most important uh, piece of scripture for understanding this whole idea. So we're going to dive into it as soon as we pray. So pray with me. Lord, um, we need you. We need your help this morning. I need your help this morning. These are weighty things and big things that we're, we're stepping into. And we need your spirit to illuminate the scripture for us. We need you to soften our hearts and our minds. We need you to expand our, our imaginations, Lord, for, for what this could look like. And we know, I know that I don't really have what it takes to do that. But we, we trust that you do, Lord. So we pray that you would move powerfully this morning through your word. We want to be worshipers of you, Lord, and we want to lo- know you and love you more. Help us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we don't have time to get into the whole conversation of Jesus with this, the, the woman at the well in John 4. It is a beautiful passage. It has so many important implications. Like It's, it's wonderful, but we're just going to jump straight into the content here. Jesus has this discussion with this woman who is a Samaritan woman. We'll get into the significance of that here in a minute. But they aren't supposed to be talking. They're like ethnic cousins. The, 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 the blood has turned bad. Uh, there's a lot of suspicion between Jews and Samaritans. And yet Jesus is showing an uncommon amount of attention and kindness to this woman as, of course, Jesus, isn't that so Jesus-y of him to do that? Um, but the conversation turns and she asks him a very pointed question. So he's, he's described some things about her life that he couldn't possibly know. And she answers, verse 19, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. I can tell, like, you're, you're getting supernatural insight to my life somehow, one way or another. And so she asks him a question. She says, okay, he's a prophet. Let's, let's put it to him. She says, our fathers, that's the Samaritans, the Samarit- her Samaritan ancestors, worshipped on this mountain, Mount Gerizim. And she says, but you say, that's the Jews, you guys say, Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. So which is it? Which is it? And before we jump into this, maybe we should provide a, a definition of, of worship just, just from, from the text here. They're using this Greek word, uh, proskuneo. Um, that's the, the, the basic form of this verb, which simply means, you hear it, pros, pros, hear the pros. It means prostrate, to prostrate oneself. Most literally, it means to lay your body down before something. And so if that's the image, if that's the root of this, this image for worship that these two are using, Jesus and this woman are using, um, you can imagine. It, what, what it implies is a whole body, whole person falling down to offer honor to the thing that you're falling down before. And as you might guess, like laying down also implies like a, a extreme, like uh, an extreme humility, an extreme humbling of yourself before the thing or the person. It is a deference to the object of worship, whatever it is. And as we said last week, uh, from there it can involve the ideas of adoration, which is a deep love and affection. It can involve the idea of reverence, which is the giving of honor and respect. It can involve the idea of devotion, a deep loyalty and enthusiasm. But keep that core image of that Greek verb right there in the front of your mind. Pros, 
prostrate before the thing. This is intense, and it's extreme. But her question then, if that's what we're talking about, worship, prostrating yourself before something in order to honor it, her question is, where do we do it? Where do we do it? There's our question again. Where do we do this laying down before God? And again, this side of the cross, I'm assuming most of you understand worship can and does take place anywhere, but we do well to understand why this was a live and controversial question in their day before we dismiss it. Which means we need to understand the story of worship in the Bible up until this conversation between Jesus and this woman. So, if we're going to understand worship, and this will be brief, I promise. When we're discussing where worship must take place, we are talking about probably chiefly the role of the temple in Israel's worship. This is where the Jews worship God. And before any, we go any further, we have to address the question of what is a temple? Because that's not typical stuff for us, most of us, uh, in the modern West, to engage with a temple. So a temple is something that many religions have, and they play crucial roles in the story of the Bible as well, both temple, the, the temple to the God of Israel, as well as other sort of pagan temples and shrines and those sorts of things. In fact, one could say you can't really understand biblical worship without understanding the meaning of temples. So what is it? In short, a temple is the place, a physical place, where the presence of God dwells. The physical place where the presence of God dwells. Where humanity can encounter God and then respond to him. Which we said last week is our fundamental definition of worship. Encounter and response. And you can encounter and respond to him in a uniquely direct way. A uniquely direct way there. So Jesus knew there is a beginning of the story of worship that precedes the physical temple in Jerusalem. And for his answer to make sense, we have to trace back what, what Jesus would have known about this for it to make any sense to us, for his answer to hit us as deeply as it's supposed to. So I just want to mention four phases of temple and worship for the people of God. And I should have moved these guitars, but I think I can, I think I can swing, swing it around them. Kennedy, is Kennedy in here? I'm so sorry, Kennedy. It's a lovely heart. There's a little chalkboard here. So, I'm just going to do, I actually didn't premeditate what I was going to draw for these four images, so just stick with me here. Uh, this could get really bad. Um, so the first thing we're going to do is just the status of the temple in the early creation state. God creates. These are stars. This mountain, these are the trees. This is the good world that God made, according to Genesis 1 and 2. And I'm so sorry, people sitting right here. It's, it's beautiful. You, wouldn't you can't imagine how good this looks. So, it's not explicitly stated, but the creation of the ordered world that we read about in Genesis chapter 1 culminates in a seventh day where God, what? Rests. He rests. And then he chooses, we're we, we put together through his interaction with the humans that he's created later in Genesis chapter 2, that he chooses then to inhabit this created world in some sense. See God walking with them in the garden. He comes into his creation in some sense. After his, his uh, he culminates it in the day of rest. So he's communing with Adam and Eve in the garden. Some people have said that the initial creation, you could view it as this like cosmic temple or even perhaps a garden temple, both the cosmos themselves and the Garden of Eden, this ordered paradise of delight, are meant to be 
temples. What's a temple? A place where people encounter and respond to the presence of God. Does that check out? I think so. So in this initial state, this very good created state, we said this, uh, we talked about this quite a bit over the summer uh, in in our, our God of Every Good Thing series, but the created state is not only a beautiful canvas filled with God's creative glory, it's not only a generous and lovingly hospitable world for his image bearers to enjoy, but it is also a cosmic temple filled with his loving presence among his people. So we have to ask, okay, if, if that's right, if the early created state is a temple of sorts, what did worship look like there? Have you ever asked that question? Let's put it more simply. Did Adam and Eve worship God? What do you think? I think we have to assume yes. I think we have, I, I think we have to assume their worship of God was profound and deep and uninhibited, unhindered. You know, the, world, the word worship isn't in Genesis 1 and 2, but I think, I think we have to assume Adam and Eve responded to God with utmost faithfulness as they obeyed God's loving commands. And what were God's loving commands? Well, some of them were to have children, to be fruitful and multiply, to spread out, to take God's rule out beyond even the garden itself, and to cultivate the raw materials of the garden and beyond. What else? He tells them explicitly to enjoy the food that he's given them. Enjoy all the fruit from the trees, except for that one. You remember that one. He tells them, go, enjoy the food. That's one of his commands. Uh, To enjoy the pleasant beauty of the creation he's made. He even says some of the trees are for for fruit. They're they're meant to be delicious to the taste. Some of them are just for the the sheer beauty of looking at them and enjoying them. That was something that they were commanded to do. Enjoy the beauty of what he's made. Uh, They were even, Adam was given the task to name the animals. So that's sort of this ordering thing in its own little way. So I take it, I take it that this living of life with God in joyful obedience to God in each little detail was worship. In fact, I find it hard to imagine any moment in their pre-fallen, pre-sin-stained state, any moment they existed in was not full of worship, was not a worshipful moment in and of itself. And then, so, all of life was worship because all of creation was a temple where they encountered him. There was no division between God, God's presence, and them. God didn't need to separate himself because of sin or anything else. So, all that said, there's this really interesting moment. There's this one moment recorded where Adam breaks out into poetry, perhaps into song. We don't know. Do you remember what it is? Anybody? He sees his wife. That's exactly right. Thank you, Sam. He sees his wife. There's the, you know, Genesis 2 features a story of them trying to find a suitable helper, and Adam's naming the animals, and this doesn't work out, and then he creates woman, who is like and yet different from Adam, perfect pair for him. And out of that, poetry, perhaps song, he says, this is at last, don't just gloss over, it's at last, like finally, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. What is this? I'd say this is just an outburst, an outburst of recognition of another good gift from a loving father. This is a moment, I think, I think this is a glimpse of the role of music and song in our gathered worshiping life. 
Like, you're going about all of life as worship. You're encountering God. You're enjoying the things he's made. You're doing the things he's asked you to do. You're enjoying him. You're enjoying creation. And then some moment hits, and you can't help but stop and exclaim it. It actually works itself out of your body. Like, your body fully engages, and you have to proclaim. And he's using poetry here. He's using his artistic gifts to, like, make a statement, a declarative statement, recognizing the goodness of what God is doing here. I'm not saying that Adam is worshiping Eve. I'm saying that I think, like in C.S. Lewis's words, this is an example of Adam chasing the sunbeam up to the sun, up to the good giver, up to God himself. So, I think that's what worship looked like in the the early creation state. But of course, this beautiful state didn't last once Adam and Eve left the freedom of the abundance that God had given them. They transgressed the one boundary they were given, eating of just this one tree from which they were forbidden. And you know the story. They rejected God. They broke their fellowship with him. It introduced sin and evil and their necessary consequences of suffering and death into the world. But... We see in Genesis 3, God still remained committed to right the wrongs and to bridge the new gap that existed between humanity and himself. And so from there, you move forward in the scriptures, there's all kinds of, you know, examples of various characters worshiping God. I think Abraham might be the first where, the, where one of the specific verbs for worship is used. And these, these kinds of worship came through trusting God, obeying God, making offerings and sacrifices to God and so forth. But there, the next kind of big moment came with what we'd call the tabernacle. Okay. Are you ready for this? I'm not. I have no idea what it's going to look like. <laughs> the, sh- the shame is, like, I've looked at pictures of the tabernacle so many times, and now I'm just totally blanking on what it looks like. It does not look like that. Trust me. You can read a detailed description right there in Exodus, but uh, we'll just use this for now. The point is, it's a tent. And, yeah, this is, I don't know. I should have thought about this ahead of time. The point is... I want, I want you to, let's, no, 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 we're, 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 we're changing the tent, okay, it's a tent, the main thing I want to focus on is this heavy curtain right here, that's what's most important for our purposes, it's a tent of meeting, but from the most, from, from the outer court to the inner court to the most holy place, the holy of holies, there is a heavy, heavy curtain that only one person is allowed to enter one day a year, that's important, so, After the formation of the people of Israel and their establishment as a nation following the Exodus, God commanded them to build a tent, a tabernacle. Build this tent. You can read the plans right there in the Torah. A tent of meeting that would be an ordered way of communing with God. And because they were a nomadic people at this time, it was a movable tent. You could pick it up, move it to your next place where you're camping, put it down, continue to worship, pick it up, take it with you, so on and so forth. It was movable. So they built this movable place where God would graciously, this was his idea, he said, I'm going to graciously house my presence once again in this thing, in the innermost room, in the holy, most holy place behind this heavy curtain that can only be approached with the utmost seriousness through the sacrificial system by which people and priests would approach him there. So, A thick curtain or veil hung between the most holy place and everything else, and it could only be passed by the high priest once a year on the Day of Atonement. The presence of God was among his people. This is a privilege. Like, I am going to place my presence in your midst in this place, but, but it was protected. Protected through the rituals, 
protected very physically through this, this, this curtain right here. So that's tabernacle. Well, you, as you probably know, eventually, King Solomon finally built a permanent structure in Jerusalem, a permanent version of the tabernacle called the temple. And it's this, the very same idea. It's where the people and the priests could commune with and worship God. And even the design of the temple, did you know this, the various elements the artistic representations commissioned to adorn it were specifically meant to recall the Genesis 1 and 2 imagery of the created cosmos and the garden. Did you know that? Adorning the walls and the ceiling and the various little elements and the, the kind of uh, liturgical tools inside. All of it was meant to recall that early creation state. So, same idea. And you still have the heavy curtain inside, keeping the innermost, the holiest place, the holy of holies, sectioned off. So, as Jesus and the woman, that's all, that's all our backstory, as Jesus and the woman are discussing all of this at the well, they are fully aware of this history. And not just this history, but the history of the Samaritans as well. Okay, one last piece of history, sorry, it's quick though. So the Samaritan controversy is this. The Samaritans were descendants of the Israelites who did not get deported to Assyria after Assyria took over the kingdom. So one scholar noted that Assyria's ethnic, religious, and political, not Assyria's, Samaria's, the Samaritans' ethnic, religious, and political development followed a course that diverged from that of the Israelites in the southern kingdom of Judah. So these left-behind people who did not get deported into Assyria they got to stay in their land, and they, the capital was there in Samaria, and they got to, like, over time develop their own cultures, apart from what God was doing with the, the other kingdom. And here's what happened. Eventually, their religious identity had become so different that they ended up saying, hey, we need a temple. We need a temple. Like, we, we, are, we are now functionally a different religion from what they're doing over there in Jerusalem. We need a temple of our own, and they did build a temple on Mount Gerizim, the very mountain that Jesus and this woman are talking on. So they built their own temple where they could worship apart from the Jerusalem temple, ultimately to worship a different god of their fabrication. This was idolatry. And eventually, like, there's bad blood here, of course, because the Israelites are always viewing these guys with suspicion. Eventually, an Israelite leader ordered the destruction of this temple, uh, the Samaritan temple, and the you can imagine the resentment that starts to build up Oh, you've got a different temple. Oh, that's not the real temple. We're going to come destroy your temple. And just the back and forth division and bitterness between these two ethnic cousins here now at this point. So that's the background. Once again, she comes to Jesus. Okay, Jesus, where do we worship? My father said it was here. You guys say it's here in Jerusalem with this temple. What is it? What's the answer? Okay, now we're ready to look at what Jesus has to say. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain, Mount Gerizim, the Samaritans worshipped, nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Jesus is just so, he's willing to offend everybody, isn't he? He's willing to tell her, I don't care about this so-called sacred space, but out of the same breath, he's willing to say, I don't really care about the Jerusalem temple either in this sense. His answer is neither here nor there. 
The hour is coming, he says. What hour? Well, the once for all sacrificial death, he was about to die in a short amount of time. And do you know what that, that death did? Do you remember a special thing that happened at the temple the day Jesus died? Anybody? That's right. So this thing got torn in two, and this was thick. This was a supernatural act. The temple veil was torn the very moment that Jesus died. It tore the temple veil. That is the moment, I think, Jesus is forecasting. The hour is coming. Worship will not be either here or there in the temple. Something different is going to happen. Jesus is going to die. He's, of course, going to be resurrected. He's, of course, going to ascend to the Father. And then, of course, he's going to send his spirit. So Jesus was looking forward to a day that was coming very soon when his death, his death would rip apart the division between humanity and God that our sin had necessitated. Hallelujah. The most holy place at the temple, don't miss the symbolism of this, the most holy place at the temple was no longer the place where the presence of God was going to be encountered for worship. So where is it? Where is it? It's us. <laughs> These are people. I do people, not just a person, because I think there's something important about the communal aspect of this. Why did I give them little pot bellies? Because... Because we are told, and it happened first on the day of Pentecost, as the disciples were waiting in fear, waiting for what Jesus was going to do next, when the Holy Spirit came upon them, there was this giant rushing wind sound. At that point, we saw these little flames of fire on their heads. But regardless of how, how unique or not we're meant to take that day, from that day forward, everyone who trusted in Jesus and what he had done here now was the home of the Holy Spirit in here. He came to make a home. He came to indwell his people with his presence. The Spirit of God, the presence of God, was no longer in one physical place. It was in his people. This is why Paul uses the language of your bodies are temples, temples, temples of the Holy Spirit. That's what Jesus is looking forward to in this conversation. The day is coming you won't worship here or there. So what? So what? That means you can worship anywhere. That's what he's saying. Jesus is saying, if this day is coming, there are no longer religious sites you have to go to. There are no longer these pilgrimages you have to make. If you really want to encounter God, God has come to you. God has come to you. He has come to make his home within you. You are the temple. That means wherever you take yourself, if you are in Christ, you are taking the presence and spirit of God with you. That's what Jesus is saying and claiming here. So where is worship? It's not here, it's not there, or it's both, rather you should say. You can worship God in Jerusalem, you can worship God in Mount Gerizim, you can worship God wherever his spirit is. And where is that? If you're in him, it's wherever you are. It's wherever you are. 
So Jesus' principle for worship, this side of the cross, this side of Pentecost, is you can worship anywhere. That's number one. His second principle, we'll, we'll skip the line here, but we'll, we'll highlight the idea that we're to worship in truth. He says, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. He's saying here, like, I'm not validating, he's, he's trying to say I'm not validating the Samaritan sort of offshoot of Judaism that you've created. I'm not saying like, oh yeah, that's just as good as what, you know, the Jews have. Saying, no, no, no. You worship what you don't know. You're, you're worshiping in ignorance. We do worship in legitimate means. For salvation is from the Jews. In fact, Jesus himself was a Jew. But, but, the hour is coming. The hour is coming and is now here because I'm here where the true worshipers don't you want to be one of those? The true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. I want to focus on truth, because that's kind of what this first little statement of Jesus is about. You worship what you don't know, we worship what we do know. So what does it mean to worship in truth? I would put forward three ideas. One, you worship God as he is. Worship God in the truth of who he is as he has revealed himself to be. We don't get to make up our own religions. We don't get to fabricate our own idea. I think I would like to worship God in this way. Oh, well, he doesn't want to be worshipped that way. That's fine. We'll get rid of him. We'll, we'll find a God who does want to be worshipped that way. To worship in truth is to say, I will worship. I will bow down before this God as he is and as he has revealed himself to be. Secondarily, out, flowing out of that, is I will worship him as he wants to be worshipped. So again, you might want to do it a certain way. He might want, he, it ultimately doesn't matter if he desires worship to, to, to happen in a certain way. We are conforming our worship to what he desires. He's the agenda setter for this stuff. And then I can't help but think a third idea that Jesus has in the back of, mind, of his mind here is related to what he says later in this book in John 14, 6, when he says, I am the way, I am the truth. There's a big emphasis in the Gospel of John. Belief in Jesus as the truth. I can't help but think that when he says worship in spirit and truth, it's not just God as he is in the way that he wants to be worshipped, but through Jesus, who himself is the truth and the final revelation of God. So the application here, what does it mean to worship in truth? It's, I think it's pretty simple. We don't get to invent our own temples. We don't get to invent our own forms of worship. We don't get to invent our own gods. Genuine worship can happen anywhere, but it's only genuine if it is in harmony with his truth, most, most chiefly revealed in Jesus. So worship in truth, worship in truth. But also worship in spirit. And that's where Jesus kind of emphasizes in the next two verses. He says, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. So he repeats the phrase. So what does he mean by this? What does it mean to worship in spirit alongside truth? Well, I think first of all, it's recognizing this. Jesus is about to reveal this radical shift in where the presence of God makes his, makes his home. It's in you as a temple of the Holy Spirit. Worship cannot, genuine worship cannot happen unless he has made his home within you. His spirit has come to dwell within you. His spirit is, is, is the activator of genuine worship. But it's also, I think, a lot of commentators agree here, 
I think it's also secondarily the idea of our spirits communing with his spirit. There's this wonderful passage in Roman where it says, uh, the spirit of God bears witness to our spirits that we are children of God. So there's this, like, a lot, a lot of theologians will say the deepest way we connect with God right now in this life is through our spirit, that, that immaterial, spiritual aspect of ourselves that encompasses everything. We can't strictly divorce it from the physical, but the spiritual reality of our lives is where God most intimately connects with us, where he most intimately communes with us. And so I think it's the recognition of God's spirit coming alongside and communing with our spirits. And I think one other idea that's in this idea of spirit is if we are to, if we are to worship him in spirit, it means in our deepest places, our deepest places with all of ourselves. The idea here is, is a whole self sincerity, maybe, right? If, if you're taking notes, write that phrase down. A whole self, you can't talk about the spiritual without talking about your whole self offered in sincerity, your whole and deepest self in sincerity kind of worship. This is Jesus' hallmark teaching on worship. And we do well to consider it. He's telling us he has moved worship, his coming, his life, death, resurrection, ascension, and sending of the Spirit has changed the game of worship from a time and a place with a strict veil to a ripped veil in all of life, all of life potentially being worship. So I ask you now, ask you again. Here's, here's for review. Here's for review. Where's the temple? In us. Where can we worship? Wherever you are. Wherever you are. How do we worship? In spirit. Our whole selves and deepest selves communing with his spirit. And in truth, the proper response to who he is, what he wants, and through Jesus. That is what worship is. I think Paul captured something of this when he wrote in Romans 12. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. It's the same idea. Your whole self, your body, your mind, your heart, your strength. Didn't Jesus say something about that as well? All of you to the deepest places offered to him. This is worship. Your whole body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. So, what Jesus would tell us is that your whole life becomes the place of worship, empowered by the Spirit of God, if you'll let it. If you'll let it. Here we see spirit, here we see truth, we see whole person involvement, we see the discernment of the genuine will of God in that Romans 12 passage. And here's the here's final, final point here. This is really important to, to clarify. This does not mean, as I'm guilty of sometimes saying, that all of life is worship. There are many times that this pastor is not worshiping. There are many times when this pastor is sinning, is rejecting God, is disobeying God, is hurting the people around me, is selfish, is fleshy, on and on and on. 
This does not mean that every single thing we do, we just get to kind of whitewash, yeah, everything's worship. Whatever I do now is worship. Wouldn't that be a horror show if God received that kind of worship? Just what any, anything anybody wanted to do anytime. No. No, what it means is that all of life is potentially worship. Any moment is potentially worship. If we'll make it so. If we will yield to his spirit. Put more directly, there is no moment of your day rightly lived that cannot honor and worship God. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? So what does this look like in practical terms? I mean, we're not, here, we're not going back here. God didn't, Jesus didn't take us back here. I think that's coming. Something like that's coming when you turn to the end of your Bible, Revelation 21 and 22. It looks a whole lot like this, and that's awesome. But I do think that this, where we are right now, looks a whole lot more like that than it does like this. What does it mean to live a life of worship? I hope by now you understand. I don't mean like you've just got to like have a hymnal on you all the time and just like, oh, I'm supposed to be worshiping now and like singing a song, singing a song. I think it means you're going about, your, you wake up in the morning. You wake up. You say, it's important to me to commune with God. I'm going to pray. Maybe it's one minute. Maybe it's two minutes. Maybe it's 10 minutes. Maybe it's 15 minutes. Maybe it's 30 minutes. Whatever. I'm going to commune with God. I'm going to pray. I'm going to speak to him. I'm going to listen. I'm going to open up his word. I'm going to try my best to, to, to come to his word in a posture of humility and reception, saying, like, I, th- I think this is the word of the king of the universe. And as much trouble as I have understanding it, I'm, I'm, I'm going to come willing to receive what he has for me in this. And then, you know, like, your roommate is, like, I don't know, has made a mess in the kitchen or something like that before they didn't clean it up. And you have a, mo- a, a choice in that moment to either, like, freak out, be a jerk, or to, like, humble yourself, extend grace and peace and love towards that person. That doesn't mean you can't say you need to clean up your dishes, of course. But, like, every little moment is a potential moment for you to say, like, I'm going to do what Jesus would do in this moment. I'm going to let his spirit influence my reaction to this. And you know what? If you honor the Lord in those little interactions over a dispute over dishes, you know what that is? It's worship. And then you go to your job, if you have one, and you're working, and there's a moment, there's a moment where, actually there's not a moment, you're just doing your normal job. Nothing controversial, you're just working. And you're doing the best you can with the time that you have, with the energy that you have, you're trying to honor, you're not cutting corners, you're not cheating, you're not stealing time, whatever. You're just trying to do a faithful job of honoring like this job that you've been given, whatever it is. You know what that is? I think that's worship. And then especially a moment comes where someone asks you to like cut a corner or to operate without integrity, to to bend the system in some way, and you have a moment of decision there. You choose to honor the Lord, to be truthful, to be honest. You know what that moment is? It's a moment of worship. It's a moment of worship. You go outside, you, 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 know, you get done with lunch, and you, I don't know, you go do something, you're like, you go, go climb to Mount Tabor, enjoy the sunset or something, and you finally have a moment to just kind of take in. You, you, you connect the dots between the physical beauty you're seeing of the created world and the creator who's given it to you, and you offer him praise in the quiet of your heart. You know what that moment is? It's worship. That's worship. And sometimes, sometimes, 
You're so overwhelmed in a moment that it doesn't just come out in quiet, you know, maybe silent prayer in your, mind, in your own mind or whatever, but you actually have to physically exclaim it. Like, it, there's too much in there to just be quiet and reserved, and you have to actually shout something, sing something, state something. You're writing poetry on the spot if you're the type, whatever. You know what that is? You know what that is. Come on. It's worship. It's worship. I think that, I mean, we could go on and on and on, but I think the idea of us as whole people in spirit and truth, living alongside our God, trying to constantly yield to them, like that's, that's the flavor of it. That's the flavor of it. It does not mean you're always singing. I think it means sometimes you should sing passionately. If like you are actually moved by this stuff, and how could you not be? Sometimes that does come out through your body, through your arms raised, through your knees kneeling. Other times, it's simply in how you show love and compassion to someone around. You know what I'm saying? All of life, with these exp- exclamation points of verbal praise that come out. So next week, next week we're going to talk about singing and posture. Like, what is that? Why? Why is this all over the scripture? Why do we do it here? Why do we prioritize it here? That's what we're going to talk about. But I first want you to see how that slots into this. And this moment we have here, right now, Sunday morning, 11.10 a.m., inner northeast Portland, right here, we have a moment if we will take it, to recognize if you are a follower of Jesus, if you've trusted him, the Holy Spirit lives within you. And also, when two or more are gathered in his name, he is there, he promises. And you have a moment to recognize that the presence of God is here, whether you, whether you will let yourself have the eyes to see it or not, he is here, he, he, he just is here. He's promised that. You have a moment to tune your heart into that and to, to think on the gospel, think on his word here in John chapter 4. Think of what he's done in your life. Think of the way he's answered prayers. Or if not, think of the way that you're in pain and struggling and you're crying out to him and you need something from him and things are really hard. Nonetheless, you're turning to him and not somewhere else. And to let all of that actually come to this point of exclamation where we get to sing. We get to use our bodies, our vocal cords, our hands, our knees, our backs to respond. That's what we're doing, Door of Hope. That's what we're doing. This is one of those moments right now as we're about to sing a little bit more. And not just when we sing, not just when we sing, also when we take communion, when we, we, we're obedient to Jesus' command. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commands. One of his commands is do this in remembrance of me. He took the bread, he broke it, he took the cup, he said, drink this. This is my blood spilled for the forgiveness of the sins of many. We come to the table and we take that in obedience into him. We have this little moment, this little image of a meal that he's left us. This picture of physically taking, letting him physically nourish us by his grace and what he's, what he's sacrificed for us on the cross. That is worship, if we come to it rightly. We have a giving box. We have a giving box, not just because we're greedy, I, I don't think we are, but because we think, like, church matters, and this church matters, and God wants to do things through this church, and on some level, uh, we have to have money to do those things. And so we invite you every week, whether through here or online or whatever, to sacrificially give uh, in some, some measure to support the ongoing mission of this church. You know what that is? It's worship. We have a prayer. Do we have prayer today? I don't remember. Oh, yeah, Anna Christie. Anna Christie's on prayer today. You could take a moment 
if you feel the Lord stirring something up in your heart, whether it's related to this stuff or not, whatever it is, if you'll take a moment of obedience to step out, say, I think God wants me to pray with someone or maybe confess this thing or share this thing or just be vulnerable about this, and you'll do it, you know what that is? That's worship. That's worship. And on and on and on and on. So, Door of Hope Northeast, right now, is one of those moments where we can let who Jesus is and what he has done and this new amazing thing that he has purchased for us, we can let it bubble up inside of us and we can respond with our whole selves in both spirit and in truth. Should we do that? Amen.